This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley with the Collector Car Podcast. This is an episode that's all about next generation cars. And you know, I know a little bit about that, but I'd much rather have an expert talk. So I I brought on Philip Richter. Philip, how are you doing today? I'm great, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you being on here because I've seen you from afar. I've read your articles in Sports Car Market, one of my favorite magazines. I've Great. just mentioned, yeah, yeah, I just mentioned before the call, I saw you at the Quail, but I didn't want to inter- interrupt you and your family. So it's our first time meeting. So I appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. Yeah, well, I just, uh, I earlier I listened to your uh, podcast with Ken Gross, which was awesome. He's a legend. And I uh, I caught a tidbit there on March 1st. They're going to do a hoods up at that Vero Beach Museum. And I'm going to go up there and, and go for that. So that was a great tip. Thanks. Oh, that's great. That means my podcast reached one person that will actually go to that. So I appreciate <laughs> yeah, I'm that. I'm going. I'll be there. <laughs> tell Ken, them, tell them you're that. there because you heard it on the Collected Car Podcast. I will. I'll tell Ken that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ken's great. Anytime you can get Ken talking about cars, you want to hit the record button, right? It's incredible. The knowledge knowledge that guy has is just unparalleled yeah yeah well i alluded to next gen cars but if you would kind of give us an overview of your involvement in the car world um and it sounds like you got a lot of stuff going in a couple places so yeah just kind of give us an overall you know 101 yeah so i mean it, it all it all kind of the genesis is passion right for for cars and and frankly i think even more for the people who are involved with collector cars it's an incredible uh, demographic that chooses to spend their time with these vehicles, chooses to restore them, to show them, to share them with people. Uh, my my love of collector cars kind of goes back to uh, I grew up on a farm outside New York City, and I always had motorcycles, mini bikes, dirt bikes. So I always loved things mechanical. I always loved tinkering with things and fixing them and breaking them and cleaning them <laughs> and dirtying them and all that. And uh, I grew up with this uh, guy that was in my my grammar school cr- class, Malcolm Prey. And his dad owned the uh, Porsche Audi Volkswagen franchise in Greenwich. And, and this was, you know, I met young Malcolm in 1975, 76, when I was uh-huh. five, six, seven years old. And he and I were best friends. And on, on play dates, I'd go over to Malcolm's house on Round Hill Road. And his dad had these garages just full of cars. I mean, and, <laughs> I mean, 300 SL Gullwings and, you know, Porsche Spiders and all these just crazy cars. And being five, six, seven years old, it was just a candy store. And uh, so that kind of got my my passion going in cars. And then, sadly, young Malcolm, my friend, died in an automobile accident mm. when he was 16. And big Malcolm and I became really close. And I sort of became his his stand-in son, if you will. And we did a lot of things together, went to a lot of shows together, and just had a lot of fun together with the cars. And then I started my uh, collecting habit and uh, built a garage on our family farm up in Westchester County, New York. Uh, and I've been uh, really collecting pre-war vintage BMW motorcycles from the 30s, which was, uh, my dad grew up in that period of Germany, a very, very ugly moment in history with some very beautiful motorcycles that that were one of the only positive things to come out of that decade in Germany. But, um, and then, uh, and then modern classics. So cars that I grew up with kind of in the 80s and 90s that, you know, that I just, always wanted whether you know the the quintessential to me the quintessential kind of modern classic young timer car for me is a a mercedes 500e 
right? The the Porsche built collaboration sedan with the flared fenders and all that. And cars like that uh, appeal to me because of my because of my age and my demographic, but also because they're they're drivable even today on a modern you know on a modern highway you can drive a 500e and you know do anything a modern car would do. Uh, but it's different. It's something that was, took 18, 18 days to build and handmade and pushed around on dollies in, in, in the Porsche factory. So cars that are bespoke, cars that have a, a, a manufacturing process that's different or interesting, uh, like the Audi R8, you know, they're, they're all built at um, Quattro uh, GmbH, a whole separate building, and they're pretty much hand-built cars, I mean, beautifully made instruments. So cars like that that have something special behind them that are, you know, in that modern classic category. I recently dove into the pre-war world and I, I bought a, a 1933 Packard 12, which has just been such a fun thing to be involved with and uh, going to shows with a car like that and driving a car like that. Um, they're just, they're engineering masterpieces and those cars will be around forever. I mean, the, the car's almost a hundred years old. It drives like, drives like it's new, stops, right. uh, just runs. You have to be careful when you're starting it because you can't hear the motor running. Right. It's like, it sounds like a Tesla <laughs> when it's even when it's idling. So it's fun. Um, met some, so many great people in the car world. I, I started my garage, Turtle Garage. The nickname comes from a, uh, from an oil and gas project I invested in in southern Louisiana that was in the uh, Turtle Bayou field. And by dumb luck, it was a success, and it enabled me to start collecting cars and building my garage. So I've named the Turtle Garage after the Turtle Bayou discovery uh, that we had in southern Louisiana, uh, mostly natural gas well. Um, and then I started writing a blog, and uh, turtlegarage.com. And from that spread a relationship with Keith Martin at Sports Car Market, who was reading my blog and then asked me to write for Sports Car Market. And that's just been an absolute, you know, what's a great publication, great people, great staff and, and very organic. It, you know, the magazine is really a um, it, it's really a public good in the sense. I mean, Keith may own the magazine, but the contributors and the participants in the collector car world really own the magazine. I mean, you get people, you know, like Miles Collier writing incredible articles about cars, or Ken Gross, or all these these luminaries who um, right here, yeah, there you go, <laughs> sports car market. And and I don't think there's anything like that in the market. And there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of magazines that have tried to, you know, displace them or or do something like them. And it's just it's not the same. And uh, so that's been really fun. And uh, I've recently gotten involved with the, uh, the Revs Institute uh, in Naples, Florida, Miles Collier's um, fantastic uh, collection. I don't even, you can't even really call it a collection. It's, it's, it's a shrine. It's, a, it's the most beautiful uh, place to go if you're into uh, historic vehicles and, and their history. So I'm, I'm working with them on, uh, they've created a small advisory board and I've been um, put onto that to help with some things they're working on there, some initiatives. So it's been really fun. And uh, I do a couple panels for Sports Car Market. I spoke uh, last year at Pebble Beach uh, on the panel with uh, Randy Nonnenberg from Bring a Trailer. And we talked about, uh, you know, all the things that are going on in, in that universe with um, the, the changes in, in the way people are buying cars, looking at cars, commenting on cars, uh, vetting cars, all of it. So uh, it's just a, it's a great world, and I really enjoy the people. It's really fun.
Yeah, no, no, that's really great. And I appreciate you <clears throat> being on this podcast. And as you, you know, dive into this world of cars, it sounds like you're kind of going in two different directions. You're going to the pre-world, pre-war. Yeah. But then also, you know, in the next gen stuff. So if you would, let's kind of talk about next gen a little bit. I do have some cars. Uh, yeah, I'll save it to the end that I want to ask yeah. about that aren't aren't next gen cars on people's radars. It's more for me in my high school. I'm curious about your thought on them. Uh, <laughs> but why don't you kind of give us an overview of your thoughts on the next gen and what they're driving from a collector car marketplace, some of the valuation trends you're seeing out there? Well, I think, you know, the valuations are shocking. And, you know, from from my position, um, so I'm a I my my day job is I'm an investment manager and my firm um uh, that I founded, uh, co-founded, is called Hollowbrook Wealth Management, and we we manage capital for families, foundations, endowments, and we look very carefully all the time at valuation. Like, who wants to pay too much for something, particularly in the world of stocks and bonds and and risk assets? Whenever you overpay, you 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 really ultimately get burned, and and we work really hard not to overpay for things. The collector car world is is just become a mania. Uh, if you look at what's happened in some of the pricing uh, dynamics of some cars, uh, most cars actually, uh, the charts are just up and to the right. It's it's stratospheric what's happened, and it, it's not just one kind of type of car. It's, I mean, you're you're seeing you know Honda Civic SIs uh, selling for seventy five thousand dollars on bringing a trailer that have four thousand original miles, um, but but I think you got to ask yourself the bigger question like what's really going on here. You know, in, in our world of investing, you would say, well, we've had a decade of free money. The Federal Reserve has kept interest rates well below the level of economic growth. We've printed tons of money. We, we created over $10 trillion during COVID. You know, Andy Warhol paintings that were once $400,000 are now $40 million, $50 yeah. million, $60 million. Um, So there's asset price inflation everywhere because of this central bank experiment that then went around the world. Then the European central bank did the same thing. The Japanese central bank, the Chinese central banks, they all printed money. Um, you know, it's, you could say it's a race to the bottom in some senses, but what's really, really interesting in the car world is that you have this just powerful force of demographics. Uh, you have people like me who had a 500 E over their, you know, bedroom wall in college or, you know, the, the classic quintessential Countach poster in your dorm room, you know, call it what you want. This is this is very much emotional uh, buying. And now it's global because demographics and technological innovation. And, and really, I think what this comes down to, it's not so much the Internet that's changed the car business. It's the ability of ubiquitous networks. So high speed Internet on your phone, smartphone. Nobody really, not a lot of people, I think, go to bringatrailer.com. I think they're all on their phone, even though they don't have an app yet. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, that this network effect of, of being able to, you know, always have your phone on and be connected to data sources, that wasn't so good 20 years ago, right? right. And so the dot-com bust had to blow up and we had all this dark fiber around the world that now is finally lit up. And, and we're getting the benefit of that in the collector car world because it's 24 seven, always on, always available from any device. Um, and so demographics and, and these 24 seven, very innovative sites, it's, it's a big change in the industry. And I think, um, you have to rethink your view of what's a car worth when so many eyeballs can see it. And there's passion here, which is not, which is very different than the investing world where 
you know, it's one thing to be passionate about pharmaceuticals and, and, and industrial stocks, but it's another thing to just overpay to buy, you know, Pfizer. People right. just don't want to do that. But, but that same investor will overpay for that, that Porsche 944 Turbo that they could, couldn't afford back in 1987, and now they want that car. And so that's what's going on here. And the young timer thing, or the, uh, the next-gen cars, I think really the, 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 the real focal point here and the interesting thing to talk about is what's going on in the JDM market or even just Japanese cars in general. Um, you know, the, the day of the, the day I saw and bring a trailer a couple of years ago that a Supra sold for six figures, I just was like, oh, my God. These are cars that, yes, I mean, the Supra was a badass car when it came out. A friend of mine had one new big wing. I mean, the thing was just a powerhouse, right. but, but it was a Supra, right? It's a Toyota. Um, now, you know, that car, there's a lot of people who want to own that car and there's not a lot of them left. It's the old story, right? Like the, the E30 M3 is another poster child of that type of car. I have one right here on the lift here and, you know, they were, they're amazing to drive. They're analog cars. They're, they're just drop dead gorgeous with the flares and, but they were used up. Like those cars were meant to be driven. They were racing, put roll cages in them. People drove them. You know, and the ones that got sold here in the states for the homologation rules, they ended up in like Darien, Connecticut, in parking lots, <laughs> baking in the hot sun, while the owner went to the city to work and came right. back at night. Right. So, find find a like fifteen thousand mile E thirty M three or a nine thousand mile Supra that's been lovingly cared for. Kind of good luck, even though they made a lot of them. Right. So the production right. stats, you know, Ferrari, you know, it's always important. 959 Porsche is like such a low production rate. But some of these higher volume production cars that are special, there's just not that many left. Period. Yeah. And then yeah. and I guess there are, but they're not investment grade. Find a find a ten thousand mile five hundred E. It's 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 unobtainium. They're right. all too fun right. to drive. It's yeah. like saving your wife for her next husband. Like people aren't gonna, you know, not drive a five hundred E. Right. Yeah. The Japanese market is, I think, a really great example of this of this phenomenon of modern classics of, of young timer cars, whatever you want to label these cars from the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, there's just a great, powerful demographic that now has cash to spend. Right. Yeah, no, it's really cool. A couple of things you said there. Obviously, the uh, the Internet, you know, the speed of the Internet as such and the global aspect financially because what I've seen, at least in the in the live auctions as well, is you know you've got those internet bidders that are just as active in the room, so to speak, as uh, you know as anyone else is. Uh, so it's it's really nuts. And then also it's from a global perspective, you know. So they're they're getting up at the time to make sure yeah. that they do at least at the, you know at the live auctions to catch them when they're crossing the block. Uh, so that yeah. is that is really cool. I, I um, recently there's some interesting dynamics too about like online bidding, and I recently just bought a an Audi R8 on uh, Bring a Trailer, and it was Thursday. It was a Thursday afternoon auction, and it was um, during Calvalino and during Scottsdale, <laughs> and there just wasn't a lively. You know, there wasn't a ton of bidders out there, and so you can you can buy things from time to time where there's market failures, right? Where there's just not that other three people in the room. They're busy. They weren't around. They're, a, they're a, you know, a car show or they're a Cavalino, wherever they are. And uh, so sometimes you can get a, a good deal, even with the commissions and shipping. And everything. All right, Philip. Well, 
you know, you've, you've talked about a lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool cars. Um, I do want to talk about some specific ones to get your insight on it, because I think uh, your insight will be very, very interesting. So what's cool is we're actually before Amelia Island. So I want you to kind of maybe guess if you guess where these cars land in the estimate range, that'd be cool. If not, that's fine. But just kind of your thoughts on some of these, what I qualify as next gen cars. Now, some of them are a little bit different. I, I guess you would say the very first one, I don't know, you would call it a next gen car, would you? I mean, it's from the era, but it's it's definitely an exotic supercar, the 1991 Jaguar XJR 15. Yeah, that falls into the more of the kind of... Uh, Hyper. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, back then, it, there weren't, a, there wasn't even really a term supercar, but it, it, these are, these are, you know, ultra, ultra rare, you know, prototype type supercars. Um, I mean, that is a, that's an incredible piece. Yeah. Yeah. Now, would you put this in? Do, are you seeing the uh, next generation buying this or is it more of the old guard buying it? I, I mean, I think these are a collector who's buying a car like this is someone who, who probably already owns, you know, several super rare Jaguars, probably a very sophisticated uh, investor, collector, um, wants that slot in their collection because this is something, this is unobtainium. I mean, I don't know when the last time one of these has come up in an auction ever. Yeah, there's only 27 built, yeah, so yeah. So, you know, this is, this is definitely a big boy car and... I think you've got to have a, a real passion for for Jaguar, British heritage, etc. Um, you know, th these are these are just halo supercars. <laughs> Incredible! <laughs> what a, what a piece! Wow! Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. My next one here. This one's pretty cool. Four GTs. They've been all over the board. I mean, they went kind of nuts. The heritage went up to 800, 850. So of course yeah. the base. The quote-unquote base Ford GTs had to follow suit. Um, what are your thoughts on the Ford GT from an X-Gen perspective? I, I love these cars. I think these are, this is just such a fantastic thing that Ford did. Uh, the, amazing that they were able to get this out of the boardroom and, and onto the road. Uh, a friend of mine has one. Uh, he drove it all over Europe, and now it's in his living room. These are, <laughs> these are fantastic cars to drive. Uh, I've never driven one myself. I've driven in one. Um, and then obviously the follow-up where they even just took it to a whole nother level with the new GT. Um, yep. But I think these are, look, I think this is a one-way train for these cars. These are, they, they didn't build a ton, ton, ton of them. And they're great driving cars. And so put that all together. It's actually a pretty reliable car from what I've gathered from owners. Um you know, these, these are going to continue to be in demand. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, do you think they, do you think they've peaked like the estimate on this one's 500 to 600? Do you think that's dead on? Do you think, what are your thoughts? Or do I kind of think, think everything here is, is not just for GTs, but I think the market in general is, is very, very full, very full. Yes. And okay. I think cars like this definitely become victim if, 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 and when we have a downturn, uh, or or lower you know demand activity, um, but you know look at this. I mean then then they come out with this, which yeah. is just um, you know what a what a statement about the American automobile industry and where we are and that we're not dead. We're we're very very much alive. Uh, these halo cars are are just spectacular. 
Um, if you've ever seen one of these in person, this is this is a classic example of a car that really needs to be seen to be believed. The pictures just don't do it any justice. Um, you have to see these in person, and they're beautifully built. A um, lot of carbon fiber, as you can see, and uh, just a stunning car. But yeah, I th I think these are you know I think all of these things are are very full, very full. okay. Yep. It wouldn't surprise me to see four GTs trading down. You know, a year or two from now, that at least that that generation, not the prior generation to this, um, but you know, the, the, these are in the long run they'll be great cars to own, and and you you enjoy a car like this. This is a car. I, I don't think people should, in general, I don't recommend buying cars as investments. I think you buy cars for passion, and if you if you have good taste and you buy the right thing, you're gonna do very well financially, anyways. But that's that's not why you're buying these assets. Right. Unless you're a dealer, of course. That's a different topic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and this is the 2024 GT Carbon Series we're talking about. And I've always loved the rear flying buttress on these things. It's just oh, unbelievable the way they designed it. Yeah. yeah. I would put this car up against anything built by anybody. McLaren, Porsche, anybody. Lamborghini. Th this car is badass. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's incredible for sure. Uh, this next one I'm kind of curious about. It's a Dodge Viper. You know, give me your thoughts on that as a next-gen car. Much more attainable. Uh, this is the crazy version. This is a 17 ACR Voodoo 2 edition, yeah. one of the very last ones. But just Dodge Vipers in general, you know, the first gen that were at 30 grand forever. Now they're at 80 grand. Just give me your thoughts. I, I personally, I think the first-gen Viper, I mean, this is obviously a great car. Don't get me wrong. But I don't want to drive a car around with a 30-foot wing on it. You know, it's, it's, it makes a pretty big statement. I, I think the original Viper, as envisioned by Bob Lutz and created by Bob Lutz and his team, it, it just shows, again, American innovation. You know, they took the parts bin from what they could get. They worked at night. These guys pushed this through the sausage grinder of Chrysler at the time, which was not an easy grinder. And they made it happen, and they built these cars, which really was a modern Cobra. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of a Cobra, the the the, uh, the roofless version. And they they did it, and and I think those cars have been undervalued forever. I mean, they were th you're right, they were thirty grand all day long. You couldn't even once with no mileage in the wrapper. And now, I mean, they're moving for sure, and they should move. Um, they're raw. There, I mean, this one, the later gens are, you know, you actually have a glove box and you have right. <laughs> stuff, but where the, the original cars uh, were really, really raw. Yeah. And, uh, and I think really attractive, really good looking cars. I mean, beautifully designed car. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think all of these Vipers are going to be important cars going forward. But if my money were on, I'd buy a 92. I'd buy an early production car, even though those weren't as good as the later production cars from a quality control standpoint. I right. think as a historic product out of Chrysler in that era to build this car. Yeah, you know, I think about it, they were building, you know, the Dodge Acclaim and the Dynasty, you know, the shadow and cars <laughs> and the shadow. And I mean, God, and this thing comes along. So. It's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I would love to have a 96 that it's tr traditional blue GTS 
with the white stripes, the yep. chrome wheels. You know, yep. I take that all day long. Yeah. All right. Get, Give me your thoughts on the SLSs. Uh, this is the Black Series we have in the auction, which is super special. Yeah. Estimates like eight hundred to a million dollars. Um, just the SLSs overall. Where do you see those in the future of car collecting? I, I, you know, it's funny. I obviously they're awesome cars. I mean, just let's talk about the base SLS, right? You yeah. Get them in alubeam silver metallic with the you know special color order and AMG special colors like. They are they're cool, and the Gullwing doors obviously harken back to the great '55 Gullwing. Um, this car in particular, though, and I'm talking my own book because I own a I own an SL65 Black Series. Okay. And and this car just to me has just too much going on. It's it's too bombastic. Um, <laughs> it, it's just a lot to look at. Whereas the SL65 Black Series just is a sleek, slick, wide body v12 by turbo machine but look these are this is a any black series is an amazing car and no one's gonna ever um you know say that this is not a great car the the, the black series i mean talk about you know taking an already ludicrous car and then making it even more crazy that's what black series is all about and this is obviously a pristine example um but i do think these um these shot up for a while and they came back in and now they appear to be on the move again. I think I think the market's starting to understand that, you know, these Black Series cars really are different. I mean, if you look at this car relative to a normal SLS, I mean, the the, the bodywork is actually completely different. Uh, the stance, uh, right. interior appointments, all of it, even like the quality of the leather of the Black Series cars is generally better. I mean, the, the leather in the SL65 is a whole different level than a than a pedestrian SL65. Um and these are all, you know, again, most of them all built at Alfalterbach. They're not, they're not built at Mercedes. They're all built at AMG now. Um, I think that the bla any Black Series car, I would love to have in my garage. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and these, these, these would be my least favorite, only because I just think it's, it's just too much. Too um, much. Right. It's just too much. But it's a Black Series, and at the end of the day it's special it's special being an, an sls but it's special being a black series so i i like actually the plain the plain jane um sls uh alubeam silver great car and they've gone up quite a bit they've they've seen a real bid yeah so, yeah yeah okay um I, i'm not going to go through all the ferraris i pulled for you but we can talk about that in a second uh the instant classic the porsche 911 r tell us about that where do you see that i mean those things just took off as soon as they were built, right? I mean, so we had one of these. So I think, I don't know if we talked about earlier, my uh, my sh my event that I do, my weekend uh, uh, car event, the Turtle Invitational. We do it every other year. Um, we had one of these at the Turtle Invitational in 2019. And I mean, look at, look at this, look at the interior, the upholstery. Like it's, it's, um, these are, the, the the followers of these cars are fanatical people and they <laughs> want this car and right. you know I, my my problem is with porsches i mean they're building a lot of cars they're building a lot of cars that are special so when you talk about you know rare porsches they're now like oh they only built 900 of them or whatever you know the iteration is these are rare though and these these have just their own bespoke feel performance following 
And uh, that car, I mean, of all the cars we had at the Turtle Invitational in 2019, we had some great vehicles. Th this car caused a total sensation. People went mad when it pulled in. So yeah. I, I think that's a, you know, of the, of the long lineage of incredible Porsches from, you know, the 55 Speedster through the 959, this car is going to be always mentioned in that list. Right. It has to be. Yeah, yeah. Would you see the new GT4 RS with that? Yeah. Yeah, another instant collectible from Porsche for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. No, instant collectible for sure. And this one's obviously new in the wrapper. It doesn't, it's never been. Yeah, new. yeah. Um, I did have one more Porsche. I just threw it on there because I thought, oh, that's very interesting. This 2000 Porsche Boxer S. Now, yeah. the S, this one's no reserve. It's kind of a purple kind of color. Uh, it's got some nice little options on it. The estimate's only twenty to thirty grand. Is that is that way too low? Where do you think this thing it's would sell cheap, at? It's cheap thrills. Like, okay, this car is not going to appreciate, but these are fun to drive. Have you driven one? I have. Yeah. The S, the S in particular, actually is really worth the extra. You know, having that, they're great cars. I mean, I think Porsche was trying hard. Uh, you know, that was a tough era for Porsche. You know, the, 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 old, the old adage was you, in the old days of this era, you couldn't tell a 911 from a Boxster from the front because they were basically using the same parts because right. yep. they needed to cut costs and things. But these are, these are really fun to drive. And it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a three pedal car, obviously. And, um, you know, not, a, not, that's a lot of car for 20 to 30 grand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do know we need to go before too long here, but I did want to ask you, getting back to more of the JDM aspect of the world, where do you, uh, what are your thoughts on the R34 as it becomes, you know, uh, they're slowly becoming legal to bring into the U.S.? Do you think, yeah. do you think as there's more prices will go up or do you think as there's more prices will go down? Do you think it's... I, I, I think that's a car that is all about demand. And I think they could bring 100,000 of them into the United States. And I think there'd still be appetite for it. Right. Oh wow! Okay. Facetious, but I, I think I think there's strong demand for that car and a lot of the other JDM cars that are kind of obscure uh, that are now becoming old enough to be imported to the U.S. And I think you're going to see a lot more of those, you know, those types of cars coming in and and buyers to buy them. Any barrier to it mostly being right-hand drive and stick shift? I don't think so. I think that just makes it quirky and, and unusual. And then it's truly a JDM car, right? Like right-hand drive just says it all. So I, I, I don't think so. I think uh, th th this is all stuff that's not going to happen again, right? Right. Like, like we're moving towards the appliance car, right? You know, we're all going to be driving eventually if the regulators have what they want. Um, we're all going to be driving oversized golf carts, Right and, right, and these are things that I think the market's realizing that, like, you know, the the V twelve X Y and Z is not going to be built anymore. Right, and these are beautiful instruments. Like these Ferraris that we were going to talk about, the you know the the um, the F forty or the GTO or the F fifty, you know, even Ferrari, like they dip their toe in with the La Ferrari, and you know now it's a it's a ninety thousand dollar battery change on that car, right? Um, a, a lot of these cars like these jdm import cars they're i don't think toyota and and honda like they're not going to be building these again in right. my view right and so it's it's a real case of of demand exceeding supply and then with the jdm thing you have this you know this this 
this rule on timing. So now they're dribbling into the United States and there's going to be more excitement about them and more excitement and pent up demand. So I, I do need to let you go because I don't want to take all your time up, but I could talk about this forever. Uh, what in your mind are desirable uh, next gen American cars that are not, you know, you got the Viper. I mean, the, the Grand National, that seems Sorry, to not fall in. ship has sailed. Right? Yeah. Well, but I it's the there's, era. There, there, I mean, there, there, the answer to this question is the ZR1. The ZR1 Corvette is, it, it, again, I fall for these cars that have an interesting build history, right? So, you know, GM got Lotus involved. Yeah. Uh, they got Mercury Marine involved. And they built this thing kind of at the end of the malaise era in the late 80s. And when that thing hit the front page of, of Car and Driver, I just still remember the, the cover, you know, King of the Hill, you know, yeah. uh, all of that, um, the Corvette from Hell, you know, all of that. That thing is just, it's such a cool car. And and actually for the earlier years, I think 90, 91 and 92, the, the, uh, the ZR1 was actually wider behind than the yeah. standard Corvette, right? Like four inches, right? Then, yeah. yeah, and then they made all of them that way. But you know, a 1990 Corvette Zero One again, not the best year. I guess the 95 is really the one to own from a standpoint of like being the best performance and best build quality and all of that. But an early ZR1, an early Viper, um, you know, can't throw out a Grand National for sure. Uh, they're out there too. But but I think the ZR1 is the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've seen a couple of the, the Camaro Firehawks lighting it up a little bit. You know, some of those, like you said, one off, they only built 16 of them, you know, that kind of stuff going on. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Was there yeah. anything we didn't cover that you well, wanted Greg, to cover? I would just, uh, you know, a shameless plug for the uh, Turtle Invitational coming up sure. September 23rd and 24th in Bedford, New York. Uh, you can go online to turtleinvitational.com. It's for a good cause. It's the Prey, the Prey Foundation, Malcolm Prey Foundation in Connecticut. Uh, that that uh, actually Bedford, New York, that um, does a lot of great things for underprivileged kids, teaching them about what's what's uh, possible in life with entrepreneurial pursuits and and what people have done in this life with with nothing and and built great empires and and, and done a lot of great things for the world. So we're doing that. There's a uh, there's a dinner Friday night. There's a road tour. Uh, Saturday, there's a barbecue at the Prey Foundation Museum Saturday night, and then the show is is Sunday, and we're um, it's going to be a really great weekend of fun. We get a hundred cars; it's all invite only. The cars are all curated and invited. We get fifteen motorcycles, um, and uh, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. So. Well, I will put all the information with links in the description to this uh, episode, so people can definitely find out more about it. And uh, really appreciate your time on the Clutch of Car Podcast. I'll have to catch you on the next show field, right? Great, Greg. We'll see you out there. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.